this afternoon because there's something you should already be noticing. What do you think it is? See, Nora's paying attention. The date is wrong on the slide. See, and I would like you to think, thank you, that that was deliberate. Except that I only noticed it a little bit earlier. And there you go. So I wasn't paying attention when I put the right put the date on there. I got the date wrong myself. How about that? Paying attention. You see, there's lots of lessons in this area for us all. Um, paying attention can be should we say, uh, costly if we don't pay attention. Uh, most of you here will know that, of course, on um, the first Sunday of the month, we're now in a different venue at Reading University. About two months ago, Tim and Chevy and I were looking at new venues, and we went to Reading University to have a look at that one for the first time. We met there. I parked outside, and I parked carefully because there were some low concrete bollards in the car park, and so I parked carefully between the bollards. We went and had the meeting, and the meeting went on a little bit longer than I had hoped, and I was quite hungry. It was late by now, and, you know, it was um, getting on for two o'clock, you know, lunch. You know, it was normally a bit earlier than that. I hadn't had any lunch. It was also one of those extremely hot days. You know those days we had back a couple of months ago? So it was very, very hot. The meeting was interesting, but frankly, I was a little bit bored because it's all about, I don't know, it's just a meeting. It's a, it's a room. I mean, it's just looking at a room. And it took a long time to just look at the room and I was bored. I was hungry. I was hot. And then I went back to the car and then Tim and Chevy and I were going to take our cars and go and meet somewhere else. And I was a bit flustered and I wasn't paying attention. So I got in my car, I put my car in reverse. And I started to reverse, and then there was this scraping noise. And I noticed that where I parked, there was a lip, and I thought, I just caught the bottom of the spoiler. Or, you know, I thought it was nothing big deal. No, just something at the bottom of the car sounded like. And I pushed it back a bit further, but mm, didn't sound good. I went forward, a bit more scraping. Not good. And then I thought, hang on a second. This doesn't sound like just something under the car. So I opened the door and got out, and I had a look, and... Go the wrong way. Okay, let's go that way. Oh. And that was the result. Oh. I had scraped all down the sill and the bottom half of the door all the way down one side of my car. Um, nasty, painful. Paying attention is important, isn't it? We need to pay attention. It can be very costly if we're not paying attention. And that was true for me may also be true for us. It's true for some other people too. We're going to show you. I'm going to show you.
get a bruise or two from something like that. You might get your smartphone um, somewhat wet. But it's not the end of the world. But there's some other things in our lives that are more important that we're paying attention to. Like, maybe you're not paying attention to what your uh, 360 degree review is going, how that's going to work. And you miss your promotions. You miss potential earning power. You miss... Uh, things with your children as they're growing up, you're not paying attention to what's really going on at home. Um, perhaps, I mean, I hope this doesn't happen to any of us, but if you're not paying attention to kind of who's around, uh, you might miss the person that you could end up marrying. You don't want to miss that. Oh. And on, on the biggest level of all, what if God showed up and we missed it? As in, he showed up in our lives. And he offered us a relationship with him. And we miss it. Or even for some of us here who had the experience of God showing up and we've accepted his invitation. How about though we go through periods of our Christian life when we don't notice what God is doing. We're not paying attention to what he's trying to teach us so that we can be useful to him, make a difference in this world, and be molded, shaped, strengthened to be as much like Jesus as we can. What if we miss those opportunities? We are people, you know, if you're a person of faith, ultimately at least one of the things you are is someone who's trying to pay attention to what God is doing. That's part of at least what we're trying to do. So today we're going to look at Acts chapter 7 from this perspective and have a look at... um, well, some ideas as to how to not miss what God is doing, and looking at the example of what might, you might call the kings of missing the point, which was the Pharisees. They definitely missed the point. So let's have a look here in Acts 7. Now, I can't read the whole chapter because, as you may notice, it's a long one, and uh, how many? The six, 60 verses. So I'm not going to read it. I'm going to summarize, and I'm going to dip in and out, and then you can read it more later, if you, obviously, if you want to. So let's uh, have a look at this and, okay, make sure that we don't miss out. So context first, before we get into Acts 7. Context is this. Stephen, one of the early Christians, um, who's a man full of faith and the Spirit, has been obviously talking about Jesus and the Pharisees don't like it. And they said, you need to be called to account. We're going to put you on trial. And so he's been arrested to be put on trial. And they had some accusations against him. And these are, in summary, the three things that are on the screen there. So, first thing, they're saying, Stephen, you are against the law. The law given to us by Moses, no less. Who do you think you are, Stephen, to question the law? So you are against the law. Secondly, they're saying that he is against the temple. The temple where God lives, where Yahweh lives. How could you be against the temple? But you are against the temple, so you're a bad person. You're against the law. You're against the temple. And you're just like your mentor, Jesus, uh, who wanted apparently to destroy the temple and destroy the law. Because that's a, not an accurate representation of what Jesus was teaching. But nonetheless, that's how the Pharisees took it. And so that's what they're saying uh, against Stephen. And he gets a chance to put his side of the case. And that's what happens here in Acts chapter 7. And I'm going to summarize all of the rest of chapter 7 with clicking this the correct way. There we go. Okay, so 
with the four epochs that Stephen deals with as he reviews Israelite history. He reviews the whole of Israelite history in, um, well, just a few verses here. And, but he picks on four periods. Firstly, the patriarchal period, which is Abraham and people like him. Then the period in Egypt with uh, Joseph, where people were, the Israelite people were there, developing as a nation, you could say. And then the period with Moses and the desert wanderings and Exodus and all that. And finally, the monarchy, David and Solomon. And so that's what's going on here with um, uh, Stephen's explanation and review of Israelite history. So, let's talk about a few of these things here. Abraham. What does he say about Abraham? He says in verse 4, he says, Abraham left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. After the death of his father, God sent him to this land where you are now living. Talking about the Pharisees here. He gave him, he gave Abraham, no inheritance here, not even enough ground to set his foot on. But God promised him that he and his descendants after him would possess the land, even though at that time Abraham had no child. So Abraham comes to the land, but he's not allowed to set his foot there. It's like there's some kind of force field. He can't put his foot down. He wants to settle down and put his foot down, but God's saying, no, not yet, no, your descendants, yeah, but you're not, no, you're not, you're not going to make it here. I've got other plans for you. I am going to give you a son, but you can't put your foot down here yet. So that's what's going on with Abraham. And what do we learn from this? We learn that God is with the people who move when he asks them to move. Abraham didn't have the law, did he? He didn't have the land. He wasn't allowed to set his foot there. He didn't have a temple. But still God was with him. God was using him. He was obedient by faith. And he did ultimately receive the promise of the son. We know that. That comes, right? Isaac comes. But it was his heart of obedience by faith that meant that God was with him and able to use him. Abraham was someone who paid attention to what God was doing and what God was saying, even if it wasn't conventional, normally understandable, convenient, Easy, pleasant, simple. It wasn't any of these things. It was difficult. It was hard to understand what God was doing. Leave them, my family's home. Travel a thousand miles to somewhere else. You're not even going to tell me where I can put my foot. You're going to give me a son when I'm 100 years old. I've got to wait how many years? I mean, none of this makes any logical human sense. But Abraham was someone who paid attention to God. Secondly, we've got Joseph. Now, what about Joseph? Well, you know the story of Joseph and the multicolored coat and all that, right? So I don't have to go over all that. But one of the thing about Joseph that Stephen picks out in verse 9 is that the patriarchs were jealous of him. They were jealous of Joseph. They sold him as a slave into Egypt. They wanted to get rid of, of Joseph. Let's, let's kick him out. We're not, we're not like him. He's arrogant, which actually he was rather arrogant if you read the whole story. But they get rid of him and uh, they sell him into slavery. But what does it say? God was with him. God was with him. You see, God's with the people he's got a plan for. God's with the people he's chosen. He's not just with people because they wear the right clothes, or go to the right buildings, and sing the right songs. He's with the people he's chosen, and who act and live by faith. And uh, God rescues him from all his troubles. I mean, he's imprisoned, he's unjustly accused, but God is with him all through that. He gives Joseph wisdom, so Joseph gets the wisdom he needs. We don't often have the wisdom we feel we need, that's okay. God gives it, and he enabled him to gain the goodwill of Pharaoh. He made him ruler over Egypt, all of his palace, and lo and behold, if then Joseph isn't in exactly the right place at the right time, put there by God, 
to rescue the whole of what becomes Israel. All of his brothers and his father, the 70-odd people who go down into Egypt. It is into a kind of exile. It is into Egypt. And it ultimately lends, uh, ends after a while in slavery. But the people are rescued. By who? By someone paying attention to God. Then again, Joseph is not in the promised land. He has no law. He has no temple. But he is somebody who's learned how to listen when God speaks and when God acts and conforms his life with that which God has in mind for him. Joseph is someone who pays attention to God. And then we go on to Moses. Now the largest chunk of Acts chapter 7 is on Moses. So Big Mo gets the big billing here. And uh, that makes sense because he's the one through whom the law came and all that kind of thing. And so uh, Stephen points out that Moses was, in verse 20, no ordinary child. He's uh, cared for by his family, but then Pharaoh's daughter took him in. Um, if you've seen, uh, which movie was this one? Uh, Prince of Egypt. Okay, you've seen that, right? It's a long time since I saw it because my kids are adults now. But I did watch it on repeat for a long time. Um, anyway, so he... He is powerful, it says in verse 22, in speech and action. A powerful man. And how does he use his power? By killing an Egyptian. I mean, he's a powerful man. He's got powerful arms, much like uh, Reinhardt's brother here, who is powerful in many ways. And I'm sure he's used his power in much more benevolent ways than we see Moses doing uh, right here, uh, where Moses kills the Egyptian who's beating up some Israelite, right? And then he thinks that the Israelites will think this is a wonderful thing, and, and God has sent Moses. And then he comes across two Israelites having a fight, and in verse 27... Um, although he tries to separate them and, and reconcile them, this chap says, who made you ruler and judge over us? He pushes him. He pushes Moses aside. This man is powerful in speech and action. The uh, Egyptian killer. He pushes him to one side. And he says, who made you ruler and judge? Who do you think you are? Moses gets scared at this. Scared, I think, because of what the Israelite reaction is, but also scared as to what could happen to him in Egypt. And he runs away. He runs away for 40 years. Runs away for 40 years. And I don't know what he's thinking during that time, but I doubt he's thinking that God's got much of a plan for him. Until we get the burning bush, don't we? In verse, where are we? Verse 30, 31, 32. He's amazed at the sight. And what happens? But God speaks to him. God speaks to him. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He trembles with fear, doesn't even dare look. And he says, take off your sandals, it's holy ground. And I've seen the oppression. I've come down to set people free. I will send you back to Egypt. What an amazing feeling that must have been for Moses. I will send you. And, and of course, what's Moses' reply? It's not recorded in Acts 7, but what does he say? He says, you got the wrong guy. Aaron, now Aaron, there's a dude. But... Aaron's who you need. You don't, don't need me. I mean, uh, I, I, it's not written in the text, but I suspect he's thinking, I'm, I'm the Egyptian murderer, you know, like, so I don't think they're going to want me back. So send Aaron. He hasn't killed anybody recently that I'm aware of. So send him back. Anyway, so, but God says, no. He says, no, Moses, you're the guy. And what happens when he gets back? Powerful in word and deed. Miracles, right? Signs. He takes a while to get the Israelite people on, you know, on board with this let's all leave Egypt thing. And it takes a while, 
and a lot of miracles to get Pharaoh on board with, let my people go. So uh, that takes a little bit of a time. But then he does take the people through the Red Sea and into the desert and performs miracles and gives them manna and gives them quail and gives them water from the rock. And what do the Israelites say? Who do you think you are, Moses? <laughs> Who are you? I mean, well, no, we want to go back to Egypt. We had, we had pots of boiled meat there. We, we're fed up with the quail. We're fed up with the manna. We're fed up with the... Water out of a rock? Who ever heard of such a thing? Why can't we have water out of a well? Our own well. Instead of some random rock. So they, they rebel. And then Moses kind of keeps it together. And then he gets to Sinai. And he goes up the mountain. Right? He goes up the mountain. And he's up the mountain with God. Fire. Thunder. Um, lightning. And the people are cowering down the bottom of the, of the mountain. And he's getting the law from God. Amazing. I mean, now you've got this. And he comes down the mountain and you would think, you would think, right? Released from slavery, uh, miraculously provisioned by God in the desert. All the miracles and signs. He's up there with God. He comes down. And what do you think the Israelite reaction should be? It should be, wow, Moses, you are God's person. You are the one who took us out of Egypt. You are our redeemer. You are our rescuer. You are our deliverer. We, we, we salute you and we will obey this law. And what does he find when he comes down the mountain? He finds them dancing around some golden calf, worshipping other gods, and saying, come on, let's, let's all go back to Egypt. Even his brother Aaron, now you know why God didn't send Aaron. You know why now God sent Moses. But he, Moses was someone who listened to God. He paid attention to what God was doing. Now he wasn't perfect, none of these people were. But he paid attention. He made himself available to God. And again, Moses, though he had the law, there was no temple. Later there was a tabernacle, that's true. But there's no temple, and they're not in the promised land yet. And Stephen's main point, even though you got the law, Pharisees representative of all the Israelite people, even though you got the law, you jolly well didn't keep it anyway. So why do you keep banging on at me about how I'm against the law when you don't? You look at Israelite, look at our history, look at exile, look at Babylon, look at Assyria, look at all. I mean, it, it's a story of how we didn't keep the law, not how we did. We weren't paying attention to God. That's the issue. And then we get on finally to the monarchy, to David and Solomon. And David is a man after God's own heart. And he says, God, thank you that you've seen me as a, God's own, a man after your own heart. Thank you that you've allowed me to be the king. What I'd love to do is, I, the tabernacle, tabernacle is a great thing, but it keeps moving around. And it's probably getting a bit old by now. Why don't we build you a temple? Let's have a temple. And God says, that's a great idea, but you shed too much blood. So it's not going to be you, but your son Solomon, that's fine. So Solomon, the great builder, builds this fantastic temple. And then what happens? Well, what happens is, again and again, it, the Israelites do not keep the law. They don't hold on to a pure a heart before God. And the temple is violated again and again. And the kinds of, of, of uh, sacrifices that are offered there are not pure-hearted, but are often, so often, just done out of legalism and out of a sense of form and not with the, the right attitude and the right heart. And again, God has to come back to his people again and again with prophet after prophet after prophet after prophet saying, I've given you my law. I've given you even a temple where I'm not saying I live there, but my presence is with you. Okay, fine. When will you, when will you pay attention though? You've got these things, but you're not paying attention to what they mean. 
And the Pharisees are looking at Stephen and saying, yeah, but, but we've got the law, we've got the temple, we've got, we, we've got the history, we are the people of God. And Stephen is saying, well, if you really are the people of God, you would pay attention to what God has told you, to how he has revealed himself and what he wants of you. They would not pay attention. To summarize all of this, let me suggest this. What he's saying is, to the Pharisees and to the Israelites as a group, if you like, you seek to preserve a law you have not obeyed and to protect a temple in which God does not dwell. You've got the wrong end of the stick. You have made an idol of the very law which forbids idols. You idolize the law rather than keep it. You killed the people God sent to help you, including the most recent one. All the prophets and now Jesus, the Messiah himself. Your pride has blinded you and deafened you to what God did historically and is doing now. You're missing the point. You are not paying attention. Now, having done a bit of a summary of what's going on in Acts chapter 7, we need to think about what this means for us. And I would suggest this, that I doubt we're here with any intention to deliberately try to not notice what God is doing. We're here, I'm sure, because we would love to know. We want to cooperate with God. We want to pay attention to what God is doing. But if you're like me in any sense, you know and I know that it is possible to get into a phase of the Christian life for a day or a week or a month or a year or even longer sometimes where we're not really paying attention. We are going through motions. We're in habits. We're in the groove. But is our heart really one where God show me and I will do? So how do we figure this out? How do we notice what God is doing? Well, I've got some suggestions for you, and then you can develop these and think about these for yourself. But I'll suggest that uh, the three A's are what we need to notice what God is doing. We need the three A's, the triple A, and these are as follows. First of all, do you have... I'm going the wrong way. Okay, three A's. Um, do you have any agony in your life? The first A is agony, as in, other, as in pain. Pain is something that gets our attention, isn't it? You got a headache, you, you, you notice. You got arthritis in your knee, like me, you notice. You've got um, some problems in your life that are causing you pain of one kind or another, you notice. I think it was C.S. Lewis who said something like, God whispers to us in our joys or pleasures, shouts to us in our pain. And I believe that's true. Often, you, you may have seen this in your own life, but for so many people, they won't pay attention to God until something pretty catastrophic has gone wrong. Is there any agony in your life right now? Maybe that's the way God is trying to get your attention. What kind of agony are we talking about? Well, the obvious one is illness. As we uh, go through life, we are going to get ill from time to time. Sometimes a short-term illness, sometimes a longer-term problem. I was talking to someone this morning who's got progressive multiple sclerosis. He's in a wheelchair. He's in his, I'm going to say, he's probably about 60. 
And he's been suffering with this for a very long time. And he's someone who used to be um, a Christian and then drifted away and left. But I saw him this morning and uh, he said, yeah, God's got my attention. I'm in this wheelchair. I've got multiple sclerosis and God got my attention. I was thinking, you know, I don't need God. But now I realize I need him. I need God. And also, and this was, I appreciated this about what he said, is that perhaps now I can be helpful to somebody else who's in my situation. Our pain is not valueless if we pay attention to the reason why God gave it to us or what God may want us to learn from it, perhaps even to help someone else. If you've got some illness going on. What about uh, grief? Grief, loss, is a significant pain for us, isn't it? Loss, whether it's uh, a death of someone we love or a loss of some other kind. A loss of health is something to grieve over. Um, a loss of a job. Uh, being made redundant, a loss of a home, a loss of certain things we used to be able to enjoy. Um, losses of various kinds can cause the agony that draw us back to God. Or things like debt. Debt can be agonizing because of the restrictions it places on us. Is God getting your attention through debt or some other pain? In the Bible we see many people for whom Pain was necessary for them to notice what God was doing. People like Hezekiah. What about you? That's our first A. The second A is anxiety. Sometimes God gets our attention through anxiety. I appreciate Nora had us all put our hands up about these different things we've been feeling about stress and so on. I mean, I'm not going to ask, but I would say, you know, how many of us have struggled with some kind of anxious thoughts over the last... 10 minutes, and uh, most of us will put our hands up, I think, right? I mean, yeah. it was just anxiety is part of life. But I'm talking here about the kind of anxiety that's debilitating. The kind of anxiety that keeps you up at night, wakes you up in the morning early, where you have disturbed sleep, where you can't get it out of your mind. It's churning away in your mind, probably churning away in your stomach. Churn- it's, it's churning. That kind of anxiety... I mean, God holds out the promise of peace, peace that passes understanding, cast all your anxieties on him, yes. But sometimes the anxiety is the thing that drives us in that direction, back to a restored or more powerful, more uh, satisfying, fulfilling relationship with God. Is God trying to get your attention with some anxious thoughts? Um, Parents who've got children going off to university, a lot of anxiety. Um, I was talking to friends of mine who uh, this morning again who are going to be empty nesters next week. They're, like, they're going from three children at home to none. Wow. Yeah. Wow. My goodness. They are they are ecstatic and terrified, but in equal measure. And I understand that as an empty nester myself, change creates that anxiety. My Facebook feed this last week, has been completely flooded with pictures of children in new uniforms. <laughs> Going to new schools, starting new courses, all kinds, and, and parents, of course. And I'm very happy for all you, you parents. Please stop flooding my feed. But, uh, but it, it's, there's change in the air, isn't there? 
that can create a great deal of anxiety for the children going to uh, a new school or a teenager going into a new course. I mean, will I get bullied? Will I be liked? Will my teacher be okay or not? What will happen to my results? Will it be all right? Uh, will, I, will my hair look okay? Will people think my hair's all right? Am I wearing the right clothes? I mean, there's so many anxieties that we can have. Exam results and all that kind of thing. So, those are a couple of A's, anxiety and agony, and the third one is anger. Anger can be one of the ways that God gets our attention. You know, not all anger is wrong. Not all anger is bad. We tend to think anger is a bad thing, but God is angry, right? God is uh, uh, indignant about sin, about the effects of sin, about people being in a lot of pain. So anger in itself is not a bad thing, but anger that's not recognized tends to develop into something very toxic. Are you angry? Do you have sources of anger in your life that you're not facing up to, not being honest about, not allowing yourself to sit and think, what am I learning from this? When you've been married a while, it's going to happen in marriage where simmering kind of what starts as a different point of view develops into some kind of battleground. And it was just an opinion thing, but now it's like, I'm right, no, I'm right. And anger can build up in an unhealthy way. Parent, parenting, being angry towards your children, which is not always wrong, but, but it building and building to the point where we start to act in ways that are completely out of proportion. I was talking to a friend of mine a few years ago about values. He was a sort of a values expert person. And I don't really know what values are. Well, I do now, but I didn't then. I, it's like, I can't, can't get my hands on, what is a value? What is this thing? I don't know. Anyway, I said to this chap, I said, how do you know what your values are? He said, well, one of the ways you can tell is what makes you angry. I was like, oh, that's interesting. He said, What's, what was the last thing that made you angry? And I'd driven up the motorway to, to visit him. And while I'd been driving up, uh, someone ahead of me had thrown some rubbish out of their car window onto the road. And that made me really angry. Like, really angry. Like, that's terrible. That's littering our countryside. That's terrible. So I said to this chap, what is this person who threw litter out of the window into the, onto the road? It was terrible. And I thought, that's really interesting. Because my, the, the intensity of my reaction was far out of proportion to the offence. So it touches on something deeper. And that made me think about paying attention to what is that? What is that sense of injustice or something that's going on there? If you've got anger in a particular area, it may be that God is trying to get your attention. What does that mean? I don't know for you, but you need to think about it before it blows up. Before it blows up and does something particularly ugly. Wouldn't be good. So we have three ways, and there are more, but there are here three ways to begin to notice what God is doing, or at least God trying to get your attention. And the three A's of agony, anxiety, and anger. So what do we need to do? We want to avoid some mistakes as we think about this that the Pharisees made and indeed the Israelites did over history. So three things. We want to make sure that we don't reject God's messenger. That's what the Israelites did again and again. It was Joseph, it was Moses, it was the prophets. And more recently, by the time we get to the time of Stephen, of course, it's Jesus. Jesus is God's messenger. And they reject God's messenger. It is important, if we're going to be people connected with God, that we do not reject God's messengers into our lives. Whether that's the Bible itself, 
and opening up our hearts to the Bible, letting it teach us and refine us, or whether it's people bringing us truth, friends bringing us truth, helping us to see our faults, our weaknesses, perhaps our sins, ways in which we could grow, ways in which our marriage or our children, our parenting could uh, more better honor God in the way that we live. Let's not reject God's messengers. That's the first mistake that they made. The second mistake was they restricted God's influence. It's Israel, and specifically it's the temple. Outside of that, we don't care. We don't even know. But this is where God works. God works in the temple. God works in Israel. That's it. Because God was never like that, right? That's why he goes through Abraham and the other people to say that God, God, God's not restricted by geography or by a place. And I think this is important for us because we tend to forget, at least I do, that God is with me everywhere I go. And he is just the same powerful God everywhere I go as when I'm with a group like this. Now, when I'm here, funnily enough, I feel very strong. I mean, I feel like, yeah, God is good, life is good, everything's fine, all is good. I get in my car, I drive 200 yards, and I'm like, where's God again? Where did he go? Oh, no, I've got to do this when I get home, and I start to feel anxious about something, or my head gets full of some worries. But God's still with me. It's, it's, not, it's not that this location in Lower Early is more spiritual than uh, a mile down the road. It's not that God is with us more because we're together here than he is in our family group or in our own house or flat or wherever we live. God's not restricted. Do we restrict God? We think, yeah, God, God can work in these kinds of people, but not in these kinds of people. God works with younger people, but not with older people. God works with older people, but not younger people. God, God these teenagers, I don't think God can work in them, but he can work in... We, we, it's very dangerous to start telling God what he is able to do where he's able to work. God's able to work in any place, with anybody, at any time, at his choosing. We carry that spirit with us. God is with you and I every single place we go. He's with you if you are going to work on Monday morning. He's with you right there. He's with you in that place. He's with you on the train. He's with you in that difficult meeting with your boss. He's with you in that difficult conversation with a friend. God works everywhere and anywhere. And the third thing that they made the mistake of doing the Pharisees is that they resisted God's calling. God was calling them through Jesus into the ultimate relationship with God that he had always planned for his people, but they resisted that calling. And what they failed to notice is that the people of Israel who had uh, he did the calling were people like Abraham who were called, listened, paid attention and listened and then went. They were called and they went. It's the same thing for us. God calls you and I and then he sends us places. And we, our theme of this year is Acts 8 verse 4. Those who were scattered preached the word wherever they went. And it's not a duty, that's a privilege. Not, not always easy. But it's a privilege that we do that. And expansion is part of what the gospel is all about. New family groups, new Bible discussion things, new things happening. Um, a number of our lower early friends are with the deep cut group today because we're thinking about what I mean, you know, whether Frimley could be bolstered, a new sort of ministry developing that. I think it's a great thing. You know, and, and some of that 
it can be a bit disturbing because we like we like having our friends, right? Or maybe we're only going to meet once a meet once a month together at Reading University. Maybe we'll make it twice a month. Maybe it's once. We like to see everybody, and that's a good thing. But maybe God wants us to spread more. Maybe it's uncomfortable. Maybe it's not what we would choose. But if God calls, if God sends, then us going is a sign of faith that we understand what God is doing and what He's like. We're not people that stick around and huddle up. We're people that grow and are sent out. Don't make those three mistakes of rejecting God's messenger, restricting God's influence, and resisting God's calling as they did. What do we do instead? Simple things. Uh, We open our hearts. We listen. And then we act. We say to God, I'm available. You say, I'm available, though you may wish to send me where I do not wish to go, that's okay. I'm available, and I'm here, and I'm listening, and I'm paying attention, so God, show me what you want from me, and then we act. That's what Abraham was like, that's what Moses was like, that's what Jesus was like, and that is what we are like when we are paying attention to what God is doing. You know, God isn't taking us... God isn't making us into being just a nice, good kind of people. We're not called to be good. We're called to be transformed. We're on an adventure. And how sad it is for the Pharisees that they missed the adventure. And how sad it would be for us if we missed the adventure of what God has in mind for us, whether in Reading or wherever we live. Let's not miss this incredible adventure that God has given us, for we are the lucky ones that have this opportunity Clark's been on an adventure. There's going to be a new adventure. Don't know what it is, maybe, but it's going to be a new one. Maybe it won't be as spectacular as moving everything down to Zambia, but there will be a new one. And I I would also say it's important that we don't think that it has to be something huge. The next adventure might just be a kind word spoken to a discouraged person. The next adventure might be spending an hour having a coffee with someone who needs your attention. It might just be a small act of love that transforms someone's understanding of God. We can all do that. We can all do that and we should. You know, at the end of this, we have, um, end of chapter 7, we have Stephen wrapping up. And the Pharisees, sadly are not open, they're not really listening, and they're not ready to act in a healthy way. Instead, it says when they heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. That's verse 54. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God, and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open, the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. I mean, heaven and earth are connected at this point. Amazing thing to witness. What do they do? Do they say, Excellent, Stephen, thank you for opening up heaven and earth and showing us the, the Son of Man standing at the. That's awesome! No one's ever seen anything like this. This is incredible. It's our lucky day. They don't say that. They cover their ears. I mean, they, they cover, they literally cover their ears. They don't want to hear. They can't hear anymore. They're, no, no, no. This is awesome, but no. <laughs> they cover their ears. They yell at the top of their voices, presumably to drown out what he's saying. They drag him out of the city and they stun him. 
Saul is there, but that's a sermon for another day. And then what does Jesus, what does Stephen do? He prays. See, Stephen is paying attention. He's not thinking, oh, this is going to hurt, and uh, this is going to ruin my, um, my career, and I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow morning. Or He's got his mind in the right place. He's got his spirit in the right place. Because as they're stoning him, he prays. And he prays, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit, falls on his knees, and he cries out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. What does that remind you of? Jesus on the cross, isn't it? No, that's what it is. Because he's paying attention. He's paying attention to Jesus and who Jesus is. And then he falls asleep. He dies. And this, if it was me, I think, I would have, let's say it's our church, you know, and one of our members, somebody here like Wale was stoned to death. That wouldn't be good. Well, if you don't think it would be good. No, I think it wouldn't be good. Okay. So, while I, but, but how would we react? Of course, it would be tragic, but how did the early church react? See, what looks tragic is actually glorious. Because what happens is that Stephen dies with the spirit of Jesus exhibited. And the early church are scattered at the beginning of Acts chapter 8. And what do they do? They preach the word wherever they want. And the gospel goes to Samaria. And the gospel goes to Ethiopia in Acts 8. And the gospel goes to the Gentiles in Acts 10 and 11. And the gospel goes to Antioch. And the gospel goes to the whole known world through the conversion of Paul. And who knows if that might not have happened if this happened. See, what sometimes looks tragic to us is actually an opportunity for something glorious for God if we're paying attention to what God is doing. Are we really paying attention to what God is up to? Here's the thing. The Pharisees didn't get it. Tragically. The Pharisees had the most amazing opportunity. But they blew it. And within a few decades, Judaism as it existed really ceased to exist because the temple was destroyed. It wasn't very long after that. You see, if you don't pay attention, you will pay a price. And that's true of many things in life. But it's especially true of spiritual issues. There is a price to pay when we don't pay attention to God coming into our lives, showing us things, helping us to grow, change, and then be useful to Him. But if we do pay attention, I believe Jesus will stand up for you. I love the scene at the end here where it says Jesus is standing. Because when Jesus completed his work on earth, he went to be with God, and he sat. And you'll see other passages in the New Testament that talk about him seated. And the reason he's seated is because his work is completed. It's all done. So why is he standing? I think it's like he's seated there, you know, at, on the throne. And, uh, but then he sees what's going on, and sees what Stephen is doing, and seeing how Stephen is reacting. And as Stephen is there and giving this speech and then reacting in the right way by praying and asking God not to hold these sins against these people, I imagine Jesus just standing to give Stephen a, a, a standing ovation. I mean, come on, this is, this is awesome. Angels, join in. I imagine all the angels are like, all cheering and giving him a standing ovation because this shows that Stephen is paying attention to what he's been called to do. 
He's a follower of Jesus Christ. His life means nothing to him except that he glorifies God by his life. As Jesus was, so is Stephen. And that's why he gets a standing ovation. He's paying attention. We're paying attention to what God has in mind for us. If we don't pay attention, there's a price to pay. But if we do pay attention, Jesus will stand and give you an ovation. Perhaps there's some agony in your life. Perhaps some anxiety. Perhaps some anger. If there is, that's okay. It may not feel okay, but it is okay if we pay attention to it and ask ourselves and find out what God is really up to. Friends, let's pay attention to what God is doing in our lives. He's got great, great plans for us. He's got great ideas. He's got great direction. He's got great adventures for us. And we will see those, and we will see them come to fruition if we simply pay attention. Thanks very much.